you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 58 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, I really enjoyed our discussion about the fascinating case of Griffith and Griffith, a case that's close to your heart. And you told really, really brilliantly to our our listeners. Oh, you're very kind to say so. Very kind. And we got a lot of positive response to it. More of that, I heard. Mm. More of that. Well, People well, want to hear us. We can probably find some more, yeah. Yeah, well, let's find a few more cases and mm. let's have a discussion like that every now and again. Mm. But I thought that really worked. Yep. I enjoyed yep. it. I really enjoyed it. It was very informative. Okay, well, today we are going to broadcast part one of our interview recorded at the Law Society's recent conference on the future of legal practice. We had the pleasure, the great pleasure, of talking to solicitors Sonia McEntee and David Peters. And Mark, this was our second ever live show. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite the same as being at the electric picnic for some oh, reason. I don't know whether they, the Law they, Society would be happy with that talk, the, Mark. The crowd surfing wasn't the same. It was a slightly more elevated audience, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm, well, yeah, you know, yeah. absolutely. But mm. still, still <laughs> very, very enjoyable. And actually, more importantly, very informative for all of that. Def- so we're going to bring you that mm. shortly. Yeah. But first, we're going to look at three cases you have identified from the Decisis website. The first this week is a bit of a kind of legal nerdy type of case. It concerns the rather technical issue of whether particulars can be raised in relation to pleadings in judicial review proceedings. This is kind of very important for practitioners in this area, I should know. Uh, Peculiarly, this issue does not seem to have been determined before now. uh, And it concerns whether particulars could be sought and ordered against the state in a planning judicial review. Yeah, the case, it's the Mansalis Residence Owners Management CLG and Bordmanola. And yeah, the, the, the straightforward issue was, can you raise particulars in judicial review? And as you'll know probably better than I do, Peter, the um, normally in judicial review, you tend to find that there's a sort of exchange of affidavits going backwards yes. and forwards and, and one side says one thing, the other side says another. And the pleadings, to, to the extent that there are pleadings, are what's called a statement of grounds and a statement of opposition, where you include certain factual information. But it's certainly arguable that it would be much more efficient to do what you do in ordinary plenary proceedings, where you raise particulars, which effectively says, is, please give us more detail in relation to certain factual allegations that you're making. Um, and there's a logic to that, really, isn't there? Absolutely, you know? there is, because it could certainly short, short circuit a lot of the exchange of affidavits, I think, in, in some of these ju- judicial reviews. Anyway, Mr. Justice Holland had to determine whether or not he had the jurisdiction to order uh, um, particulars. And ultimately, having gone through everything and including saying, well, that papers in judicial review proceedings aren't technically pleadings, he nonetheless accepted that the, the wording of the rule said that you could raise particulars. Yeah. And and then I think that's a very good, a very good and very, very helpful sensible, decision, yeah, yeah. and very sensible going forward. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Second case this week concerns the thorny issue of an employment injunction. A prison officer had been dismissed from his position, and he sought an injunction to remain in employment. So this is a tricky one for the court. I mean, is is you know trust and confidence still there? Can you put him in? Is he going to win his case ultimately? Loads of factors that the court has to consider before it agrees to 
grant an injunction. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I remember, you, you know, again, again, this is more your area than mine, but I remember years ago people saying, well, the employment injunction, you know, is, 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 isn't likely to be a big issue going forward. And yet it has continued to be a big issue. And I suppose where employment raises different issues, normally when you're looking for an injunction, you're looking to restrain somebody from doing things. When you're looking for an employment injunction, you're basically saying, I want to restrain my employer from sacking me. And of course, what you're effectively saying is, I want my employer to continue employing me. So that makes it more what you would call a mandatory injunction than a prohibitory injunction. So you're asking them to direct them to do something. But the grounds are and very so narrow. Very the grounds narrow. are narrow. And nope. it, you have to have a strong case, effectively. And what the the uh, the um, High Court held here in relation to the Irish Prison Service was that the he had failed to meet the threshold required to um, to, to restrain his yes. dismissal. Okay, and this is the case of Campbell versus the Irish Prison Service, and it's a decision of Mr. Justice uh, Mulcahy. So finally tonight, the Supreme Court recently dealt with the case where a man was convicted of infecting two women with HIV. A number of issues arose, including the role of the person who reported the matter to the Gardaí and acted as an expert witness and the test necessary to secure a conviction in such cases. The prosecution needed to establish that there was no other reasonably possible source of the HIV infection. This is a fascinating case. And this is the case of Director of Public Prosecutions versus RK. And it's a decision in the Supreme Court of Ms. Justice O'Malley. Yeah, this is, I mean, it was quite clear that this was a very novel case where a man had been accused of, a, of infecting two women, one of whom was his wife with HIV. And so the issue was that that the both women said that he could be the only possible source of infection. Um, and they um, had, uh, they I think had been diagnosed by this man who was the expert witness in the case who, who reported the matter to the Gardaí and then gave expert evidence in relation to the to this subtype of HIV that all th- all three parties involved had. Now the two women in the case had both told him that 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 the man in question was the only person who could have infected them. When it came to court, both of them admitted that they had had other sexual encounters that could conceivably have given rise to the HIV infection. And so on that basis, the Supreme Court effectively said that the the, the conviction couldn't be upheld. But they had a general, I don't know if the word is distaste, but a general concern for cases like this where you're effectively pointing the finger at one particular party and saying that he could be the only possible person. Because if you're trying to establish guilt beyond reasonable doubt for infecting somebody with a sexually transmitted disease, obviously you, you need to look at an awful lot of different issues. And Very also, hard to establish that beyond a reasonable doubt, I would have thought. Exactly. And, but uh, but the, uh, the Supreme Court, although it hadn't been an issue at trial, was very concerned at the role of the expert witness here. They basically said, you know, for the for the person to have been effectively the complainant or the informant to the guardie to then go and act as expert witness, they clearly felt that that was not necessarily the most appropriate way for okay. the matter to proceed. Very, very well explained, Mark. Okay, back shortly with solicitors Sonia McEntee and David Peters, who we talked to at the recent Law Society conference on the future of legal practice. Silence. In the fifth court. Folks, can I just say on behalf of myself, I'm Peter Leonard. This is Mark. 
This is a wonderful honour for us to be invited here to the Law Society to record the Fifth Court podcast. And it's our great pleasure to talk to Sonia and to David. And we're looking forward to talking about the future of legal practice. It's unusual for us to do it in front of a live audience. We've done it once before, folks, and that was at the Electric Picnic. But Mark, I think this is a bit more rock and roll, is it? Oh, definitely. Look, yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. There's, a, there's, there's a more of a mosh pit here, I think, in... Uh, in the Law Society. Okay, so folks, this, this we're, we're going to, at the end, we have a roving mic. That's what we were trying to do at the start. So that, you know, the microphone will be available to people for the last 15 minutes. And please ask questions. Please do. If there's anything that occurs to you at all, ask the question, because there's nothing better in, in a live event like this than people participating and asking questions. We had a little bit of that in the electric picnic and it was great and it made the show. It really did. Okay, I'm going to hand you over to Mark now and Mark, you can, you can kick things off. Yeah, so... Um well, hello, everybody, and thank you very much for asking us. So, as you, you're probably aware, both of our guests are running their own small firms outside of Dublin. And because this is the Future of Legal Practice Summit, that is going to be the focus of our questions. And I suppose the, the first question to ask both of you is a little bit about your background. So, Sonia, maybe we'll start with you. How did you get to where you are now, running your own firm in Cavan? And maybe just a little bit about the changes you've seen in practice maybe over the last, say, 14, 15 years, maybe since the financial crash and that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, that uh, time frame, I suppose, very much fits with, with my career and practice so far. So I was enrolled in 1998. I set up my own firm in 2002. For the four years, uh, for the four years before setting up my own practice, I was working in Ernst & Young, actually, as a tax solicitor. So I brought that tax background and, and I'm also, I suppose, a product of my time. I'm a property lawyer. I, I would say we were nearly all property lawyers coming through at that point in time, heading into the big boom, the Celtic Tiger. And then we dealt with the financial crash afterwards. So I got the practice started at a really good time. My niche, if you like, was, was property and tax. It was structuring property transactions, foreign property transactions, those kinds of things. So already I was looking at a niche kind of a space did, of course, mean that the practice was almost flattened when the, when the uh, financial crash happened. So a few really difficult years after that, trying to rebuild and keeping the, keeping the show on the road. At that point in time, I was based in Dublin too. And uh, for life reasons, I moved back to my native cabin to live in 2010. But I was commuting to Dublin two or three times a week. But I'd already got into the remote working part at that point in time. So I was doing quite a lot of work from home. So 2017 and utterly exhausted, I thought something has to give here. And I decided to move my practice from Dublin back to Cavan. And there's a whole story around that. But in terms of managing it, really what I did was I printed off my client list, my full client list, and identified from it who, which of the clients might have an issue with not having their, their solicitor available in Dublin. And I maybe identified about 10 or 12. And I thought, well, OK, can I run my practice without those clients? And I felt I can. And off I went back down to Cavan. I didn't lose a single client because of that move. I didn't move a, lose a single client because of that move. So it was a really, really good life choice, I suppose, for me. COVID, of course, came afterwards. And then I was at home and, and family and that sort of thing. It was great. So in between times, Mark, and only to mention very briefly, one of the things about being a sole practitioner is that there's a risk of becoming isolated and a risk of being out on your own. So I had set up a network of sole practitioners back in 2009, and that had been quite active for a couple of years. But from there, I was encouraged to get involved in the Law Society. I've remained very involved in the Law Society since. And that gives me a tribe, I suppose, to use, okay. that, to use that word. So, so that is, that's what has brought me Great. to where I am. Sonia, and yeah. David, 
you're a tip man. Yeah, proud tip man. And you worked in Dublin for a couple of years. Yeah, so I... And and then moved back to Nina in in County Tip. Yeah, well, I started off, I did law and European studies in UL, Law Plus it's called now, back in 94 to 98. And like many people at the time from a non-law background, it was really difficult to get an apprenticeship, wrote to many different firms. And eventually through the local parish priest, how cliche, he knew somebody (laughs) who knew someone... They still have the power, David. They still have the power. They do. But uh, he got me an apprenticeship with a really super solicitor called Mary Cullinan in Chicor in Dublin. And Mary ran a general practice, a really good general practice with a dog. It was back when everyone used to smoke in the Family specialist, I think. Have I come Uh, across her? Family specialist. She's actually a really good conveyancer. And she's, I don't know if she still does it, but she's solicitor for the Teachers Union of Ireland. So I had a really good apprenticeship with her. I was a really naive kind of young lad back then. I didn't really have, I wouldn't say I didn't have much ambition. I did, but I was more interested in my social life back then, to be honest. I was more interested in the crack. I had a bit of growing up to do. Got through my apprenticeship and then got a job working with Ferry Sisters in Dublin for two years on the Keys. Really, really enjoyed that. Then decided to go traveling for a year and a half with a few other guys. This was just coming into the Celtic Tiger, where we always thought we'd always have jobs, that nothing would ever be an issue. So three of us set off and uh, came back from Australia, decided to work in Cork City, worked there for two years. And then, unfortunately, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, her her father was ill. She's from Limerick. She decided to gravitate back there. She was a solicitor as well. So I met in Blackhall Place. And our relationships begin. Is that right, folks? <laughs> You won't believe the amount of, of husbands and wives that come out of, of Blackhawk. Um, and yeah, so we were heading back towards Limerick. Nina's very close to Limerick. I decided, well, that's my hometown. Why not go back there? And I was lucky enough to get a job with Matt Hassett in the firm James Bryan & Co. Um, quite a large firm by rural standards and uh, worked there for five years. Came into the crash, was put on a three-day week, decided to go primary school teaching. Signed up with Hibernia College, uh, was two thirds of the way through the course when the solicitor next door, who was quite ill, asked me would I work the other two days with him. I was literally writing letters to myself at one point. Um, <laughs> and uh, he called me into his office one day and said, look, I'm selling up. Would you have any interest in taking over? So and that I, was it. I decided to do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So with that kind of background, you're obviously both reasonably well established in your, very well established in your in your individual firms. What, what we're hearing at the moment is that the big problem in rural Ireland for solicitors is re- recruitment. But basically, for some strange reason, all of the young solicitors are attracted by the, the, the bright lights of Dublin City and the big bucks from the commercial firms. And so people who are looking for trainees, associate solicitors, simply can't find them. Is that is that a reasonable reflection? And I suppose also, are there other problems associated with that or other problems that, that aren't, people aren't just w- well aware of? It's, it's certainly an issue and I can see it looking around, you know, my own area as well. And I've heard other colleagues say this too, out in, in county towns, for example, where 
the longer established firms, principals are approaching retirement, perhaps with no obvious successors within the firm already, maybe no solicitors under 40 in the local area, that kind of thing. So now that said, and I know we might be shaking our heads a little bit, but we've also acknowledged that for younger solicitors, you know, the city, we folks said we got our experience at early stages here in Dublin as well. So I think it's fair and reasonable to that that's where the experience is. That's where, I mean, you can get your legal career off to a really great start. But um, is it a different experience now? I mean, you know, when you were starting off, you, as you were saying, everybody was conveyancing solicitor. Everybody was doing the kind of, you know, the things that, that ordinary Irish people want, need solicitors to do. Whereas if people are moving into big commercial firms, they're doing work for large corporate bodies. And if they then want to downsize or kind of go, well, maybe I'd like to go back to my hometown, then they've effectively got to retrain as conveyancing probate solicitors and that kind of thing. They don't have the kind of experience that you two would have. Yeah, no, I think there's there's definitely something in that. But I think that there's also, you know, COVID has brought around other factors as well. So you can perhaps move out of the city areas and continue to work in a more specialist field. We've seen that happening and we know practitioners up and down the country who are specialist in their areas, but they're not based in Dublin. I think as well that, and, and something we have been looking at inside the law study, is a kind of a retraining. So there's a conversion course, for example, for barristers to become solicitors, something of that kind. So, for example, if you've spent several years maybe in a large firm in a very niche area and you decide, you know what, I do want to go back down the country and I'm happy to move into a more general practice, that those modules then would be available to, I suppose, bring you back up to speed with current conveyancing, probate litigation, whatever, whatever it might be. So, there's lots of ideas that are being formed in terms of how we can try to counter some of this. But um, during the introduction, there was reference made to the hybrid uh, course as well. So the hybrid course, and maybe for your own um, benefit, but the hybrid course was generated to remove the requirement to attend at Blackhall Place on a block basis so that people could continue to work and and get involved in legal studies and, and seek to train as a solicitor in that way. So that opens this up now to people who are based down the country, people who are maybe already established within legal practices or maybe are in other careers, but would like to come into the law. And so I think we're looking at the law side is looking at a lot of ideas around how we can counter these issues. David, just to to bring you in there, from what you told us, I mean, generally your decision to move back to Tipperary, a bit like you, Sonia, was a lifestyle choice, but you could also practice your profession at the level you wanted to practice it at. Isn't that the case? So you can you can do what you want. I mean, there are certain professions in Ireland where, unfortunately, because of the nature of the country, you have to be in the capital city. Yeah, But I you were able to do what you wanted to do, even though you made the choice to go back and live in Yeah, temporary. that's true. And and I think the, the one benefit of general practice is the variety of it. it it's, it's, there's never a dull day in general practice. You just don't know who's going to come through your door and what they're going, what instructions you're going to get. You know, like in any given day, you could be dealing with people who are buying and selling a house. You could have, I, I do an awful lot of criminal law because that's the area of law that I enjoy the most, but which is paid the least, but I really enjoy it. You could have somebody come in who's after, you know, getting involved in a row in the chipper the weekend before. You could have somebody come in who wants to bring a personal injuries claim. You could have somebody come in to you who's just lost their spouse and they want to sort out the will, you know, so there's great variety there. But just to get back to the original question, I, I think that the reality, I think we have to face up to the realities, though, here, which are that there are 11 counties in Ireland without any 
trainee solicitor. I think there's several more that only have one. I'm not sure which one Tipperary is. I think it could be one of the ones without one single trainee solicitor. Like Sonia said, I'm, I'm from a county town, Nina, North Tipperary County town. We have zero training solicitors. We have, I don't think we've any solicitor under 40, or certainly we have two who are sons of, of solicitors who are turning 40 this year. So in some sense, I, I feel like the priest I mentioned earlier on, I do feel like I'm part of a dying Yes, Eve, which is which and, is, and you you talked about the fact that you didn't have any family connections in law. No, and I think we all know that that can be of assistance to people. But even family firms, when you say that there's no trainee in eleven counties in Ireland, I mean most of the county towns within those counties will have well-established firms, grandparents, you know, down to grandchildren. I mean, what about family members? Are family members walking away from? The traditional association yes. with their family business, which was the, the local solicitor's firm. Yes, they are, unfortunately. And why is that? I think a lot of it boils down to money, to be honest. It's no secret that you're going to earn more money if you work for one of the bigger firms in Dublin. I'm sure many of the people here are lucky enough to work one of those firms. The starting salaries are massive. You, it would take 15 years to earn that type of money if you were working down in Nina. You might never even take in that sort of money working as a sole practitioner. So it, it is down to money in that sense, you know. The second thing is that, you know, lifestyle, it, it, work-life balance becomes more of an issue as you come into your 30s, I would venture, right? So when, when you're in your 20s, maybe it's just me, but your priorities are more about your social life, having enough money to be able to go on holidays, to, to have a good time, which, you know, you should be able to do when you work as, as a trainee solicitor or a newly qualified solicitor. If you're working in a country practice, unfortunately, there aren't going to be that many young people around you. So that, that's a negative for, for rural practice, you know. Is there also an issue with regard to, say, regulation? I mean, I've certainly heard solicitors suggest that, that you know, if you're running your own firm, increasingly more and more of your time is spent on administrative matters and so your your billable hours so to speak are less because you're simply trying to keep up with with all of those kind yeah, of requirements. No, it, it is a challenge and, and particularly if you're a sole practitioner because it all falls on you to do it yourself and we've seen you know the in, uh, there was an increase in hours for the CPD requirements last year for example so we've moved from 20 to 25 but I mean an extra five hours is a full working day for for most of us you know so um, where do you find that time and, and and what do you draw that time from that you might otherwise have been doing? With new solicitors' accounts regulations, you know, and it's, it's becoming, I don't want to say it's becoming harder and harder to comply with the regulations, but it does take more time and care. And, you know, and then we have the other usual risks around doing the job well and doing the job properly. And all of that takes more time <coughs> and more care. So there's no doubt about it that there's more time spent on administration. And yeah, when you're in that micro practice, if I put it that way, it's all coming down to, it's all coming down to the one person. But can I turn it around a little bit to maybe some of the, uh, positive reasons for that. <laughs> I feel maybe we've what we're selling here is yeah, something yeah. not to be done. <laughs> but um, when I moved, and as yeah, for family reasons as well, uh, 2010 moved back to uh, Cavan. And one of at that time, I thought to myself, you know, oh my God, I'm leaving Dublin. All that I'm leaving behind. I had a young family, and I thought all of the things my kids won't have access to if I moved. Oh my God, there's more than enough. So don't ever worry about that. <laughs> what your kids might miss if you're not in Dublin. There's more than enough wherever you might go. But for me, lots of the benefits were, you know, not being stuck in traffic, not spending hours getting to 
I mentioned to Peter the other day, you know, five minutes to the bank, five minutes to the post office, five minutes to the hairdresser if I want to go and get my hair done. So um, everything really, really close. And also a slightly off street. I, I've always worked in an off street location. So I'd never, that made it easy for me to move. So I didn't have people walking past saying, oh, where's Sonia McEntee gone? Where's her office gone? Because I, I was always behind closed doors. So I, I've always worked in a service office, serviced office type arrangement. So that it meant that I wasn't, I didn't buy a property. I wasn't tied into long-term leases. And it meant that when the time came and that when I felt I needed to do it, I was actually able to make that move as well. So that was at that time. And, and I was thinking about this in the last couple of days as well. I, I think some of the benefits have changed because remote working now allows you maybe to keep the job that you have, but go to live, go to live in a country area or outside of the city. And I think maybe now some of the real benefits are around the, the social aspect, the collegiality and the relationships that you have with your colleagues. I know you do a lot of district court work. I do very limited district court work, but I do it because I believe that every solicitor should be able to walk into the district court and make an application for their client. Uh, so I, <clears throat> I push myself <laughs> to do it when I need to. But, um, but any time I go into the district court, there'll always be someone who say, you know, you're around for a coffee before you go back to the office. And again, when you're in, whether you're sole practitioner, smaller practice, um, with more than one solicitor, that connectivity with your colleagues is really, it is, it's very, it's fundamental for your well-being in practice, I would say. But it also gives you the outlets you need when you might need assistance on something. So I have a really complex conveyance. I'm not sure to do what to do about this issue. Who can I call? You want to be able to reach out to your local colleagues. So you're going to have to kind of find your people within that group as well. So to me, that's one of the really huge benefits that that I've had in working yeah, I was just going to say, David, if you could come in there and, and, and address that. I mean, I, I hope we're not giving a negative uh, impression at all, because I have to say, I think if you want fun and if you want to, you know, make a social contribution to Ireland through your profession as a solicitor, there is nothing like working in a smaller practice and working in a rural town or working in, in one of the cities in the smaller firms where you deal with people on a day to day business. You said you like working, representing the bad guys in the in the district court. The alleged, like, just, the just alleged, the alleged, of course. Absolutely, alleged. Absolutely. Um, tell us about what, what's it like? Knock on the door, somebody comes into your office. Well, what could be a standard day be like, David? So, uh, Nina has a district court I, that sits once a week, basically, right? And so during that week, you will be preparing your files for court on the Friday. And I don't want to over, like, it, a lot of it is guilty pleas, right? So you're just trying to get the best possible outcome for your clients. But in a funny sort of way, you build up really good relationships with your clients because you also know their brothers and their fathers. And unfortunately, crime runs in families. And it's, it's hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it, there's nothing like the buzz of court. Right? Yes. And I hope later on we'll get to talk a little bit more about that because I, I do a bit of criminal litigation to tutoring here in Blackhall and I love it. Right. But it's now an optional module or whatever it's called. And it, it, it kind of, I can't really get around the idea in my head that only 14 or 15 trainees from any given intake are now going to be learning criminal litigation, you know, and, and that worries me, I have to say, for the future of district court practice, future of criminal litigation generally, you know, but we might come back to that. Uh, but you asked me what on any given day, right? So I could have somebody coming into me and I want to go through statements, guard statements with them or 
you take instructions from them and then you show them the CCTV footage where invariably they go, oh, uh, okay, actually, yeah, now, now that I see it. Or you might go through things and spot technicalities, or you will get the odd client who is absolutely 100% innocent and they're the ones you really worry about. And, you, you know, you take instructions from them. So that could be part of your day. Then, as I said, you could have somebody coming in who wants to make a will. There's a lot of older people who rely on general practice solicitors. And I think they're often forgotten in this conversation because for them, the importance of sorting out their affairs, making sure, say, title to their property is correct, having a will in place, powers of attorney, don't get me started. I know. It's Not been me, absolutely messed up as far as I'm concerned in, uh, by the recent this legislation. Is the new rules. Yeah, yeah. You, you'll be dealing with somebody like that. You could have a phone call from a client who's buying a commercial property and wants everything done by next week. Fair enough. Good fees. You're going to do it, you know, and so on. That, that, that's kind of your day. You, you might start but off. The variety is fantastic, isn't it? And the great thing is you have dealings with the public, you know, right. and I mean, yeah. people can be trouble. No, no doubt about it. But I mean, people are wonderful, aren't they? Sonia, it's great dealing with with. People who come into your office and new people all it the is. time. It, it is absolutely, and and I and I wanted to be a small practice solicitor for exactly that reason. I I suppose I'm a I see myself anyway as a people person. I want to help. I want to deal with. I want to help ordinary people with small problems, and I mean that is hard. But you know I, it, that was really why I wanted to be a solicitor. And um, but going as well to some of what David was saying there about the type of work that we do. You know, we, we really have, there, there's a network, if you like, of legal professionals where we all work to a greater or lesser degrees in different areas. So we are actually reliant on one another for the provision of services. So I rely on a practitioner like David to do the district court work so that I don't have to do it. A, you know, a practitioner from another firm? A, a practitioner from, well, a, a pra, okay, if you have someone in your own firm. Great. Sure, yeah. But yes, absolutely, mm. a practitioner. From, if someone comes to me with a driving summons, for example, I'm not going there. I know that's a hugely technical area of law. I'm not even going to get started. But I want my network of colleagues around me where I can say, I know exactly where I'm going to send you and I know exactly who's going to help you with that. Um, and you have those kinds of relationships. And in that, I've done the best for my client by saying to them, I won't do this piece of work for you. But what I will do is help you to get sorted out. But, you know, you talk and, and you know, on my limited ventures into the district court, you do, you see the social element, you see the relationships between the solicitors and barristers, you know, even on occasion, you know, with the judge where, I mean, you know, there can be comedy in the district court sometimes. And I was, I wasn't in the court on this particular day, but last summer, my 15 year old son came into the office for a little bit of work experience. He's, thinks he might like to study law. Anyway, another conversation. But um, the legal exec, I said to the legal executive, oh, take him off down to the court. We've, we've a matter listed, we have a barrister who's going to handle it for us, take him off down to the court. But that was the day that the local judge threw out all of the TV summonses because of what was going on in RTE. So there was, of course, a bit of laughter and a bit of cracking. So he came out with <laughs> completely unrealistic <laughs> idea of what the district court is, of what the district court is all about. But, but that said, that is the kind of experience that engages someone. You know, more recently, I had another client in the district court with me, and it was the first time he was there as a witness. It was the first time he had ever been in the district court. And you could almost see a kind of a wide-eyed approach to, 
who's this now, what's happening next, that kind of thing. So um, it is wonderfully, wonderfully engaging. And actually for any of you who are not in firms that are doing district court work, you know, if, if you get yourselves in there and just listen to it on occasion, the High Court Superior Court's a completely different environment. The district court is really the workhorse of the system. And for 99% of ordinary people in Ireland who ever interact with the justice system, it'll be in the district court. It'll be, might be a criminal matter. It might be you know, the TV license, the driving summons, whatever it might be. But um, I think the district court deserves a lot more respect, yeah. really, than, than it might get. Can I move on just because the title of this summit is The Future of Legal Practice. And I suppose the way that you describe your practices, it sounds as if it's not a million miles away from what rural small practices were like 50, 60 years ago. You know, a lot of the work that you're describing must be relatively similar. What kind of opportunities do you think there might be for somebody, somebody here maybe, who's really innovative, who wants to change practice? In other ways, since basically since the development of the internet over the last 30 years or so, you know, we've seen people kind of, you know, they, they, they might have their equivalent of legal executives in Bangalore in India. They might be doing all of their work remotely. They might be operating their companies from other parts of the world. Do you think there might be somebody who's kind of going, right, now I'm going to set up in whether it's one town in Ireland or somewhere outside Ireland, and say, right, I'm going to do, be able to do all the conveyancing from here. I'm going to be able to take instructions for wills. I'm going to be doing all of this stuff. I'm going to get the, all of the kind of the administrative work done in another country. Are there those sort of opportunities? Or do you think there's something about solicitors' firms that means you have to be kind of there on the ground with your administrative staff? Oh, God. I, I, like, <laughs> I was I, a bit in the middle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What's the question again? Um, no, is, is the short answer to that. I, I think that anybody with that sort of drive, right, I don't see them working in a small country practice. I see them more working in maybe artificial intelligence law or some area like that. I think for a country practice, you have to be there, right? You can't be, okay, you will have clients who you can speak to like Zoom, right? That's probably as technical as it's going to get. But generally, for general practice, you need people on the ground, don't you, Sonia? You have to be there and your staff need to be there. Like during COVID, like I only have an office. I, I had four on my team, right, when I when COVID hit. And, you know, we tried to operate the office with everybody working at home and it very quickly unraveled. It just couldn't happen. You know, you can't, you can't operate court work with everyone, you know, I can't do it from home. Obviously, I have to go into the courtroom. I need the physical files. Okay, there's definitely room for paperless offices. And yes, we can all do better on that. But I see even, dare I say it, when I come up here to tutor, there are still trainees here who like to print off the pages and have them in front of them. And I'm definitely one of those people. And I think that's kind of a human instinct to be able to touch what it is that, you, that, that you're, you're studying or researching or whatever all be done through its green. So I, I think that is part of the problem with general practice, right? Because we haven't really moved on the same way that maybe other industries have moved on. Are you saying there isn't room to move on? Or? Well, I, I'm struggling to work out what you would do, right? If I knew what to do, I probably would have done it. I'm, I'm not, sure. you know, I... Yes, yeah, so, you know, so, just, just to come in on that, yeah, I mean, you're yeah. very involved with the Law Society and congratulations, topping the poll, topping the poll, well done uh, in the recent election. 
Okay, so you're, you know, the Law Society is doing its best to, to represent solicitors' interests. We know that. And, you know, you'll always get people who are disgruntled and you'll have people who are impressed, etc. And that's the way it works. What do you think in terms of that question? I mean, we have, for example, your colleague, Flora McCarthy, who was obviously active with you in the Law Society. And he's a solicitor. He, he did an interview with us in the Fifth Court at one stage who moved back to a family practice in Clonakilty in West Cork and decided that what he really wanted to do was develop a, a medical negligence practice. And there's not that many medical negligence cases in Clonakilty. So he used the internet and he was able to offer representation to people throughout the country as a result of that. Very innovative. Now, not everybody's as innovative as that, but is the Law Society seeing options whereby people can live outside Dublin or the major centres and still practice at the level that they want? Um, I, I might just come in first, if you don't mind, on a more personal sure. uh, practice level. And um, I do my, my first contact actually with Flora McCarthy was goes back over ten years, and was actually at a time when we were both looking at setting up niche practices. And I went down that niche practice route as well, and developed what we marketed as apartment law, and became a specialist in the area of multi-unit developments, which sounds very narrow, but in fact, by the time you build in you know, litigation and everything else around it. It's its quite broad. But that came from my property-driven experience and how during the time of financial crash, I was going to distinguish myself from other colleagues who were out there looking for, looking for work. But from that, I started remote working back in 2011, 2012. So I have been consistently building clients that are across the country. And lots of the clients are for the work that I do, though I don't need to be on site, if you like, to do that, to do that work. So while Zoom is still a, is, a, is relatively new within our office, the likes of video conferencing and thing, even simple thing, things like, um, you know, scheduling telephone calls and conference meetings. Um, so I was doing all of those kind of regularly anyway. So I do see how some of this can evolve, but I'd agree with David. It's, it will lend itself more readily to certain types of work than it will to others. I don't do very much litigation. So I've my saying over several years when people ask where I practice, I say I practice where I stand. I practice where I sit because I'm connected, I'm remote, I'm all of this. So I can I can take it out now and do the emails, dictate a letter or whatever. So, um, but I don't do much litigation and that then lends itself to me being more flexible um, like that. In, in, terms, in terms of law society, yeah, in, yeah, terms in, of, terms, in terms of the law society. What's the next step or the next chapter? Um, the, I suppose the law society would have been very engaged over the last couple of years with the likes of the court services around the um, the development of the online courts I think that has had a huge impact. I know for me, I do a little bit more circuit court work, but not having to attend on site, perhaps for callovers and things. I think those administrative aspects of the justice system need to stay online. I think maybe it's the first thing that we need to reinforce. We don't want to go back to some of those items. I don't have, and I don't, I'm not aware that the society has strong views around the holding of trials, let's say, online. And I'm not a criminal practitioner, so I'm not, I'm not going to involve myself. Um, and I don't know enough about it to involve myself in that conversation. So, um, but yes, the, the, the further development of technology, and we do see um, statements coming more recently from the court service about what they have planned in the coming years. So I think encouraging practitioners to engage more readily and more fully with the technology that's available in the first instance, and then to encourage and to be available. There's still this perception and it, it really frustrates me. There's still this, this perception that the legal profession is slow to come to technology. And if anything, I would say the last couple of years have shown that we're not only um, you know, quick to move, we were ready and waiting for it. We just needed the investment 
in, in the system. So I think for, from the law society perspective at the moment, it's about, um, you know, maybe some training, the provision of training, the encouragement and the engagement then with the likes of the state bodies who are looking to develop um, online services. And when it comes to online, I know we mentioned the, the powers of attorney earlier, but, you know, you just have to look at the revenue commissioners and what they have done over the last 15 to 20 years in terms of, I mean, everything now with the revenue is online. And even as they develop, even as they develop new taxes, <laughs> you know, derelict sites and vacant sites. And, this, you know, they have the system is there. The revenue engage with their stakeholders. They run training sessions on how it's all going to operate. Our conveyancing committee here in the Law Society engages then to make sure what, you know, to clarify what exactly does this mean for our members in practice. Practice knows that issue then and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, I think if there's a technology success story, it really is the revenue commissioners. The fifth court will adjourn until next week. That's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guests and part one of our interview with Sonia McEntee and David Peters. Really good. And the second part is equally good, folks. So make sure you tune in next week. And before we go, I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for the wonderful work in recording this show. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.